Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you here this morning. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first visit to our church, a special welcome to you this morning. I want to personally extend my thanks to all those who served this past week. I really felt that you put into practice what we learned last week. Remember last week in chapter 2 of Philippians, in verse 14 specifically, said, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And I really felt that in a genuine way this past week on this campus that everybody served without grumbling. And that is no easy feat when it's 100 degrees outside. And not only that, you serve with joy. And so my heart is full. As your pastor, I am filled with joy. I was so proud to be part of such a uh, caring church uh, throughout VBS. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, in a moment... As we continue our series in Philippians, Living as Gospel Citizens, I'm going to show you a partial statement on the screen. And I'm going to ask you, when you see this partial statement, I want you to complete the statement, but do it in your mind. Don't say it out loud unless you want the entire world to know what you're thinking. Okay? So you're going to see a partial statement, and when you see it, take a moment and just complete the statement in your mind, ready, go. I want. That's a wide open statement. I want. You can complete that with almost anything. I want. Maybe for those who are single, I want to get married. Maybe for those who are dissatisfied at your jobs, I want a new job. Maybe for those who are struggling with your health, I want healing. And then there are the simple pleasures of life, right? Especially for those of you who just finished serving at VBS, I want sleep. <laughs> you need sleep. Or I want an Xbox. Or a new phone, a new car, a new house, right? We all want something. For those of you who play instruments, do you ever daydream? I want to be the best musician, whatever it is that you're playing. Maybe in sports, maybe if you played sports in high school growing up, I want, I want to step up to the plate and hit a grand slam to win the game for my team. I daydreamed about that every day game when I was a senior in high school. It never happened, but oh well. But I, I dreamed about that. I want, I want. You can complete that statement with anything in life. And the reality is, there are a lot of good things that we want. I want. I want a good marriage. I want my kids to do well. I want to be happy in life. So there are a lot of good things that we can complete that statement with. We all want something. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to put all those things, even all the good things, into perspective. And we're going to compare them to the one thing the Apostle Paul wanted more than anything else in life. The one thing that Paul measured everything else against. He wanted this one thing. The title of this morning's message is, Nothing Can Compare. Nothing can compare. 
And today we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And we'll see from this passage what it was that Paul wanted more than anything else in life. And I'm not going to make you wait till the end of the sermon to figure out what that one thing was. I'm going to give you the answer up front and then we'll work our way through the passage to see how it is that you and I can attain the same thing that Paul wanted. What Paul wanted more than anything else in life was this. He wanted to know Christ more fully. That was Paul's desire, to know Christ more fully, more than anything else in life. Paul wanted to know Christ in a deep, full way. And if we had that same desire, which I hope we do, then today's passage will give us all that we need to make sure we attain that, to know Christ more fully. And so this morning, I'm going to share with you three ways to know Christ more fully as outlined for us in today's passage by the Apostle Paul. I'll begin right away. Here's the first way that we can know Christ more fully. Number one, watch out for those who try to draw your attention away from Christ. How can we know Christ more fully? Watch out for those who try to draw our attention away from Christ. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, there will be people that we will come across who will try to draw our attention away from Jesus. All kinds of people. And by the way, did you know that amongst them, there will be people who think they're doing you a favor. They think they're doing something good when in fact they're actually drawing you away from Christ. And I'll allow Paul to explain what I mean by that. Let's start in verse 1. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is an intense passage. He doesn't mince words here. And in this intense passage, Paul describes a group of false teachers. And amongst these false teachers, there was a group that went by the name of Judaizers. And he calls them dogs. Now, don't think of your cute pet at home right now, okay? Your, your cute, furry, lovable, loyal, faithful pet, okay? Your best friend. Don't think of your best friend right now at home, okay? That's not who Paul's referring to. Back in the first century, there were wild packs of dogs that would roam the streets causing all kinds of destruction and snarling at anybody who would come across them. That's who he is referring to. And he calls these false teachers dogs, he goes as far as calling them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He says, watch out for them. These Judaizers, they taught that in order for Christians 
to truly be right with God, they must conform to the Mosaic law. Again, Judaizers, this group of false teachers, they taught that in order for Christians to truly be right with God, they must conform to the Mosaic law. In other words, they went around teaching Jesus is not enough. They distorted the gospel. And they said to these new believers, most of whom were Gentiles, they said, yes, Jesus is good. He's a good starting point. But if you want to be fully accepted by God, you need to be perfected by the law. And in particular, the Old Testament Mosaic law. You see these Judaizers? These Judaizers, they said, you need Jesus plus the law. They refused to accept the fact that when Jesus came, he actually accomplished, he fulfilled, he completed the law. They failed to see that. You know, throughout church history, we've seen various forms of false teachers who were teaching a false gospel. When I was a student in college, I witnessed many kinds of religious false teachers on my college campus, almost on a daily basis. For example, when I was a freshman, I was just minding my own business, walking to class, when all of a sudden, a guy rides right past me on his bicycle. And then I see him stop up ahead. And then he circles back toward me. And then he stops right next to me as I'm walking to class. And he says, hey, do you want to go to a Bible study with me tonight? And I thought, well, that's pretty bold. Now, now I was a Christian, so I thought, wow, that, that's, that's pretty bold of him to, to just stop and ask me, do you want to go to a Bible study tonight? Well, as we got talking, it soon became apparent that something was not right. We started talking about all kinds of theological matters. And at one point, we got on the subject of baptism. And he asked me, just right there. We'd never talked before. He just asked me, hey, have you been baptized? And I said, well, yes, I have. I've been baptized. And instead of him saying to me, oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. He said to me, well, if it's okay with you, I'd like for you to be baptized at my church. So at that point, I knew something was definitely not right. You and I, we know the importance of water baptism. We also know this, that baptism does not save a person, right? We know that water baptism is a public declaration of our faith. What became apparent in my conversation with this fellow student was that his church felt that baptism was a requirement for salvation. But not only baptism, baptism in their church. So I knew right away, this is not the gospel of the Bible. The Judaizers in the first century, they pressured the Gentile believers into conforming to their legalistic standards. These Gentile believers, they were made to think that, you know, they were less. They were less in the eyes of God unless they were to look like and behave like these false teachers. 
these new believers, they were pressured into uh, adhering to the former Old Testament food laws. The male believers, new in the faith, the Gentile believers, they were pressured into looking like their Jewish counterparts. And that's why Paul reminds them, the Philippians, that when Christ came, he fulfilled the law. So when we look back at the Old Testament law, we must recognize the law was absolutely necessary. The law of God was given to Moses to give to the people of God so that they would live a life that would match their holy calling. So the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, was absolutely necessary for the people of God, the nation of Israel. That's how they would be distinguished from everybody else because they were set apart from all the other nations. But now the New Testament believers in Philippi and those of us in Diamond Bar, we adhere to a new law, and that is the law of Christ, the law of love. In other words, as we think about the Old Testament law, we can look at it this way. As one commentator puts it, the Old Testament law is our revelation. It's just not our covenant. I'll say that again. The Old Testament law is our revelation. In other words, it is God's revealed word. He gave it. It's just not our covenant. And the best way that I can explain that is by sharing an illustration that many of you, many of you have heard me share before. But I think that this illustration helps us to understand our relationship with the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And it's the illustration I use about a speeding ticket and its relationship to laws. The typical speeding limit here on freeways in Southern California is what? 65 miles an hour. That's the, the common. I know you can go different places and it's a little bit higher, a little bit lower. But generally speaking, it's 65 miles an hour. Two summers ago, our family vacationed in Canada. We were up in Canada, beautiful part of the world. In Canada, they don't use miles per hour, right? They use KPH, kilometers per hour. And so during our time in Canada, we rented a vehicle and we drove for miles, I mean, kilometers and kilometers and kilometers. We drove for hours from British Columbia all the way east to Alberta and all the way back. And we saw beautiful lake after beautiful lake. And again, KPH versus MPH. All those miles that I was driving, I had to mentally convert KPH to MPH so that I wouldn't drive too fast. Now, let's just say, for illustration's sake, let's say I was driving too fast. Okay, I wasn't, all right? But let's just say I was driving too fast, and then I see in the rearview mirror the siren and the lights and the Royal Canadian police officer pulls me over and says, Sir, do you know how fast you're going? And let's say I was going too fast. Okay? And let's just say that the speed limit on the Trans-Canadian Highway 
is about the same as here in Southern California. Let's just say it's the KPH equivalent of 65 miles an hour, whatever that would be. My question to you is this. If I was speeding and I got pulled over, would the Royal Canadian Police Officer issue me an American ticket or a Canadian ticket? He would issue me a Canadian ticket. In other words, was I violating an American law or a Canadian law? The two laws could have been very similar, maybe even identical when you do the conversion. But driving in Canada, I would have been violating a Canadian law. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament law and he ushered in a new law the law of Christ. Yes, at times, those two laws might seem similar, but he ushered in a whole new law. And while both of them might resemble each other, here's what Jesus did. When he came, he completed the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments, including the 600 and some other laws in the Mosaic law, and he ushered in a new law. Here's what he did not do. He didn't completely abolish and obliterate the Old Testament law and say, oh, that was nothing. No, no, he completed it. And he said, now I bring with me a new law. In fact, he did something even more. He took the Old Testament law, and he elevated it to a whole new standard. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred back to the Old Testament law. And time and time again, here's what Jesus uttered. He said, you have heard it said. And then he referred to the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. But then he said, but I say to you, even if you are angry, with your brother, you are guilty. Again, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery according to the Old Testament law. But I say to you, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you are guilty. Again, you have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your neighbors and pray for your enemies. Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, and he ushered in a new law. And our focus is on Christ and the law of Christ. If you think the nation of Israel had a hard enough time fulfilling all 613 laws in the Old Testament. Guess what? You and I are not off the hook because the law of Christ is even more difficult. But that is where the grace of God comes into the picture. You see, we are covered by God's grace for the times where you and I cannot fulfill the law of Christ, for the times when you and I lose our temper for the times when we gossip and slander, for the times when we fall short of God's standard. 
So church, here's a question for you. Should we study the Old Testament law? Absolutely. It's God's revelation. Should we know its significance for the nation of Israel? Absolutely. We should know that it laid the foundation for what was to come. And the more we study the Old Testament law, the more we will understand why it was that Jesus came and died because the one thing the law could never do and it was never intended to do was to save a person. Christ came. He fulfilled the law. He hung our sins on him on the cross. And that's why Paul reminded the Philippians, watch out for those who try to draw your attention away from Christ. Watch out for those who say, you need Jesus plus this, plus that. College students, watch out for those on bicycles who stop too quickly. And say, you need to be baptized in my church. We need Jesus plus nothing. That's a, here's the second thing that we can do to know Christ more fully. Put your confidence in Christ, not in yourself. Put your confidence in Christ, not in yourself. Have you ever put together a resume for yourself for a job? Okay, so you finish the resume, you look at it, and then you think to yourself, wow, that's an impressive resume. Who is that person? <laughs> I sound really important. We're good at coming up with fancy titles for ourselves when we look for a job. We're good at putting together sophisticated tasks for ordinary things. Now, if you want to see a truly impressive resume... Look no further than to Paul's resume. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Let me unpack this section. This is not just a random listing of things. Paul was deliberate in choosing to write these specific items for his resume. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is, he looks back at his heritage, and his parents raised him in their faith from infancy. In other words, he comes from a good, righteous family who lived according to the law. So he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And then he says, I belong to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is important for us to know because Benjamin, the tribe, was one of two historic tribes that did not defect from the Davidic throne. And by the way, 
the Judaizers, the false teachers, when they heard Paul talk about the tribe of Benjamin, they said, oh, wow, this man's important. Because, you see, Benjamin was one of two of Jacob's favorite sons, the other being Joseph. And so Paul was speaking the language of the Judaizers. He said, hey, I come from righteous stock. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that means is this. At that time, there were Hebrew-speaking Hebrews, and then there were Greek-speaking Hebrews. The Hebrew-speaking Hebrews, they retained their love of the Old Testament language. And they retained their love for the Old Testament law. So Paul spoke Hebrew. His parents spoke Hebrew. So he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I'm pure. I'm untainted. Are you familiar with the uh, hot dog brand Hebrew National Hot Dogs? Yummy, tasty, right? And they have a clever slogan. We answer to a higher authority. And that's because their hot dogs are pure as far as hot dogs can go, right? So as, as far as hot dogs can be pure, they're pure. They're untainted. And quite frankly, they taste good, pun intended. They taste wonderful. And so no one could outdo Paul in terms of his heritage, he came from a righteous family. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He came from the right tribe of Benjamin. And then he talks about all of his accomplishments. He says, I was a Pharisee. And he studied under one of the most well-respected Pharisees in all of Jerusalem. And then he talks about his zeal. You see, because before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he says, as for zeal... I was a persecutor of the church. This is Paul actually boasting about what he used to do. He said, look, before I came to faith, before God took a hold of my life, I was the chief persecutor of the church. He was actually boasting about that. Meaning, look, I was the chief persecutor. I'm the one that put those Christians in jail. So this is all part of his resume. And he says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Here's what Paul's doing. He's setting himself up to knock himself down. You know, so much in life, we, we kind of set people up to eventually knock them down. Paul's setting himself up to bring himself down to reality. So this is what he says in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is from Jesus through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen. Here's my question to you. Before God got a hold of Paul's life, did Paul have self-confidence? 
Yes. Before God got a hold of Paul's life, Saul had all the self-confidence in the world. No one ever had to say to Paul, hey, Paul, you got to believe in yourself. No one had to remind him of that. He had all the confidence in the world. But when God changed Paul's heart, here's what he did also. He freed Paul from the bondage of pride and self-confidence, and he gave Paul a newfound confidence in Christ. And here's what happened. Paul went from believing in himself to believing in the one who saved him from himself. I'll say that again. Paul went from believing in himself to believing in the one who saved him from himself. You know, belief in self is a teaching that we see everywhere we go. In our society today, belief in self is taught everywhere. This week, I decided to type in the words, believe in yourself in my search engine. And here are just a handful of results that came up. And I got a lot of results. Here are just a handful. 11 steps to believe in yourself and achieve success in life. 10 reasons to believe in yourself even if no one else does. The power of believing in yourself. And why it is important to believe in yourself. The list goes on and on. Now, here's the reality. I imagine every one of us has been in a situation at least once where we've been taught this. Or maybe even perhaps you've taught this. Believing in yourself. Right? We've been to workshops, seminars. In the workplace, the employees get together and they bring in a consultant you got to believe to achieve. Believe to achieve. In sports, in music, in the arts, you got to believe in yourself. If you don't, who will? So much of the conversation in our society today is centered around how to boost self-esteem and build self-confidence. How can I boost my self-esteem? How can we as parents build our children's self-confidence? Those are important questions. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have a different perspective when it comes to the subject of confidence. You see, because when God saved us, he gave us an eternal perspective. As followers of Jesus Christ, yes, we are to have confidence. But the object of that confidence makes all the difference in the world. You see, Paul knew that apart from Christ, nothing he did had lasting value. Again, was Paul self-confident? Yes, he was, absolutely. Before God got a hold of his life, nobody was more confident than Paul. He just listed his resume. But he understood when God got a hold of his life, that nothing he did or nothing he would do apart from Christ would have lasting value. And that's the difference between self-confidence and Christ 
confidence. And it's not just a simple matter of semantics, church. It is completely opposite worldviews. Now, at this point, I have to imagine some of you are thinking internally, Tim, are you saying that it's unbiblical to promote and instill confidence in my children, in my co-workers, in my spouse? Are you saying it's not right to build confidence in them? Well, if by confidence you're referring to confidence in Christ, then no, it is not unbiblical. In fact, it is very biblical. We just read about that. But if you're asking if it's unbiblical to promote self-confidence, in other words, to rely on ourselves, then yes. You see, because as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to lift one another up build one another up, encourage one another, but in every case that the New Testament says one another, it points us to Christ. In every single case, it points us to Christ, the object of our confidence. And by the way, what that doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean as long as I place my confidence in Christ, the outcome will be in my favor. See, that's what a lot of Christians wrongly think. If I put my confidence in Christ, then I will win the game. If I put my confidence in Christ, I will get into that school. If I put my confidence in Christ, I'm going to get a raise. It's a very transactional view. Confidence in Christ landed Paul in jail. Just picture that. So we must not have this transactional view. Oh, you know what? Okay, I'm going to shift my confidence. And if I put my confidence in Christ, then I'm going to be the best. Then I'm going to be number one. Then I'm going to succeed. I know that so much of our worth and value in our society, they're tied to performance, right? Talent and ability. That's why self-help seminars are so popular. That's why people shell out thousands of dollars to go to self-help seminars. How can I boost my self-confidence? Last week, we learned that we have infinite worth because God made us in his image, and he sent his son to die for us. Therefore, there's nothing you and I could do to make us that much more worthy in the eyes of God. There's nothing you can, I, can do any more or less. We are worthy because we've been made in God's image, and that's it. God is the only sovereign being in life. When we say, hey, rely on yourself. Pick yourself up from your bootstraps. Believe in yourself. What we're essentially saying is, you, as a sovereign being, have the power to do that. That would be true if we were the end. 
if we were the sovereign being. So church, it's not simply a matter of semantics. It's a matter of who we put our confidence in. And that changes everything. That changes the way that we speak to our kids. So it doesn't matter. You know, we don't just keep telling them, you're smart enough, you're important enough, you're big enough. Because that's based upon talent and ability. Son, daughter, you are worthy because you've been made in the image of God. And no matter what you do, God loves you. So that's how we can encourage and build Christ's confidence in our children. Yes, we're proud of them when they receive an award. Are we equally proud of them when they don't receive the award? You know, I love it when on TV, you know, athletes after a big game, after a victory, I thank God, all glory to God. I'm waiting for the one time where uh, his team gets defeated by, by like a landslide and says, all glory to God. See, outcomes should not determine our level of confidence in God. And I get this. I get this. You know, we hear that a lot. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. I hear that all the time. You know what? Uh, hey, I believe in you. I hear that phrase a lot. You know, you know where I hear that phrase a lot? You know, every time I run a marathon in the last two miles, you know, people on the sidelines are cheering. And when I'm dying, when I look like I have nothing left, I'm about to die, and, you know, they'll say, I believe in you. I believe in you. And they'll pull up, uh, put up posters, I believe in you. Okay? And I have to admit, it makes me feel good. Right? Because who, who wouldn't feel good when they say, I believe in you? But here's what I've learned to do. When I'm running and I'm about to die the last mile of the marathon and someone says, hey, I believe in you. I believe in you. Okay, here's what I don't do. I don't go, oh, that's so unbiblical. <laughs> I don't say that. Even though I know it, I don't say that. I just say, thank you. Thank you. And then internally, I say, God, no matter the outcome, whether I live to cross the finish line or die before the finish line, all glory to God. You see, because it doesn't matter, you know, how fast we finish or how slow we finish. It doesn't matter if you get that promotion or not. It doesn't matter if your child gets into that school or not. It really does not matter. All those things do not matter in eternity. If we can instill in our spouse, in our kids, in our grandkids, in our coworkers, you are worthy because God sent his son to die for you. You have infinite worth. Then that is all the esteem we would ever need in life. So put your confidence in Christ. Not so that you have a good outcome but because you know that you've been made in God's image. Don't put confidence in yourself. And finally, here's the third thing we can do to know Christ more fully. Make knowing Christ your ultimate goal. Make knowing Christ your ultimate goal. This brings us back to that statement, I want. 
What do we want? Let's look at what Paul wants. Verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This ought to give every one of us hope. Because here's the great Apostle Paul saying he wants to know Christ. After all he had experienced in life, he says, I want to know Christ. That was his number one goal in life. I leave you with this. Here's our assignment for this week. If you're up for the challenge. This week, let's wake up every morning, and when you hit the alarm to turn off your clock, and when you swing your legs to the edge of the bed, before you get up, just sit there for just a second, for like 15 seconds, pause, and before you do anything else, just say this, Jesus, I want to know you more fully today. I hope some of you will remember to do that tomorrow morning. Jesus, I want to know you more fully today. And practically speaking, what that means is when we get up and then when we read the word of God, when we learn about Jesus, we will learn to talk more like Jesus, walk more like Jesus, live more like Jesus, and love more like Jesus. And the reality is most of us here tomorrow, we're going to have to repeat that saying probably multiple times throughout the day. <laughs> Just say that to yourself throughout the day. Jesus, I want to know you more fully today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to know you more fully. Each day, we want to know you in a deeper, more meaningful way. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for chapter 3. Thank you for these first 11 verses and the reminder that we need to be careful. We need to be aware and watch out for those who would distract us, would try to draw our attention away from Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing. And help us to put our confidence in Christ, not in ourselves. And Lord, remind us that it's not just simply a matter of words or semantics. Remind us that we are not sovereign beings. The world doesn't revolve around me. We've been made in your image. So help us to direct confidence to the right being, the sovereign being. And help us to make knowing Christ our ultimate goal. And tomorrow when I wake up, Remind me, Lord, to pause before I do anything else and say, Jesus, I want to know you more fully today. That's our prayer. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.